0: The curriculum is First 1 Samuel 17. Thank you, Nathan, last Sunday for that sermon on the Trinity. Well done. In fact, we're going to want to hear eventually that third point. Um, so we'll have them back up soon. We'll have them back up here soon and hear that third point on the Trinity. Good, good teaching. But we are on David and Goliath. Everyone gets excited about this story. How could you not? The greatest underdog story ever written, and yet to put it in a a category with other underdog stories would not do it justice. This is God's story. We've been calling the sermon series God's Meta-Narrative, which is popular uh, speak right now for the big story. And everybody wants to frame life in the context of story, what's your story, what's your story, Um, you look on the news and, and listen and the politicians and the newscasters and all the talking heads want to frame things in a narrative and if the facts don't fit their narrative then they ignore the facts because it doesn't fit the story. We need to be careful because that's human nature. It is human nature to come to a text, to hear somebody speak to us, to read something that's been written to us, and immediately want to determine the meaning of that text to fit our story. But this is not our story. This is God's story. And when He writes a story, He means something specific. Yes, there can be multiple applications. But when God speaks, He means one thing. And it is up to us and the Holy Spirit's enlightenment and using good, solid Bible interpretation techniques, which we call hermeneutics, to arrive at the meaning of the text. Then, take that meaning and apply it into our lives. God's we must ground our story inside God's story, not the other way around. And so we have to be on guard this morning because we've heard this story of David and Goliath so many times, most of you, that it's hard not to come to the text without um, some presuppositions or, or some things you've supposed or decided on beforehand oh, I know the story and I love the story and David's this great hero against this giant. And we like to picture ourselves as David and the popular way to preach the sermon, the popular application is you too can conquer the giants in your life, whatever those giants may be. And immediately your mind starts thinking of the giants quote-unquote in your life. Maybe you've got some debt or an illness, or a marriage that is struggling. God forbid you are thinking of your spouse as the Goliath in your life. Maybe a wayward child. You know, this can be a wonderful time of year, but it can also be a really difficult time of year if you are struggling with um, any one of these things that I mentioned. But I want you to keep this in mind, Believe it or not, you might be somebody's Goliath. Yes. And you don't want anyone to do that to you. So this morning, let's be careful to read the story and receive what God has intended for us to receive from the story, not predetermine what the final application is going to be. I know that's difficult, again, because we know the story. And our culture understands the story. Even unbelievers will reference David and Goliath. It's a it's a metaphor for the underdog slaying the uh, the giant. Remember the movie Hoosiers? I know I know Nathan does basketball fan about the small town in Indiana, small school. That spoiler alert, right? wins the state championship against the the mighty uh, high school. And before they play the championship game, because back then people brought their pastor with them to the game in the locker room. That's how it worked in the Midwest back in the uh, 50s. And the pastor prays a blessing over the team, and he quotes from 1 Samuel 17 and says, "...and David chose five smooth stones." Oh, five basketball players on the court, right? Certainly, that's what God intended. No, right? Basketball hadn't even been invented yet. But that's what we do. We take our favorite text, and we like to take it and apply it to whatever given situation. And it was supposed to inspire the team to tackle the Giants. Now, the other team... The Hoosiers were getting all this press being this great small school. They they could have said, no, wait a minute. They're the Goliaths. Everyone's rooting for them. We're the underdog. And you know if you're a sports fan that if you can grab that underdog title for yourself somehow, it is a very powerful motivator. Why? Because no one's expecting you to win. So if you lose, no shame. If you win, big deal. Right? What a big deal we are. But if you are the Goliath, you're supposed to win. If you don't win, there's a lot of shame. And if you do win, it's like, oh, so you beat up on the little kid. So everybody wants that underdog title. And we all want to think of ourselves as the underdog. Not all the time, though. Because sometimes we want to think of ourselves as the big man on campus. We want to be important. We want to be special. We want to be the famous one. But if that's not working for us, then we will gladly take the underdog title. So be careful this morning that you don't put yourself in uh, David's shoes right away. I certainly don't think anyone here wants to put themselves in Goliath's uh, shoes. Of course, the modern version of this is the Howie Kendrick movie, Facing the Giants, right? It's the underdog football team. But this tendency, as we've been reading in God's story, to make ourselves the hero and make the Bible all about us is something we uh, need to be on guard of. We need to be suspicious about our sin nature. In fact, really the point of the David and Goliath story is to draw a contrast between Saul's leadership and David's leadership. Saul was concerned about his own glory. David was concerned about God's glory. My wife and I did a little Christmas shopping the other day. We were in Old Navy. We saw a shirt that said, oh, come let us adore me. You know, and I'm like, that is so offensive as a Christian to take something. But at least the world's being authentic. And they think that's clever. But at least they're not hiding it anymore. It's, it's all about me. Come let us adore me. And if we're honest with ourselves, that is our sin nature on a t-shirt slogan. Goliath, oh come let us adore me. Be, I'm the champion. Saul, even. Oh come let us adore me. Remember what he said to his own army. Nobody eats today until I've been avenged of my enemies. But we're going to hear David say, why is this uncircumcised Philistine mocking the Lord Most High? He's concerned about God's glory. We need a little context this morning. And so, so briefly, in a nutshell, the Bible up to this point, God, sovereign, always existed, creates heaven and earth out of nothing, makes God, uh, man in God's image, gives man the task of glorifying God, have dominion, fill the earth with God's glory as his representative on earth. Man is tempted to take that glory onto himself. He falls into sin. He is separated from God. That is the penalty of sin, death. The entire creation is cursed. And so even though there's great blessing and beauty, we understand this is a fallen planet and it is falling further every day. But God institutes a plan of redemption right after the fall in Genesis 3.15. A, a Messiah, a Savior, would come and defeat our enemy. But we don't hear too much more about who this Deliverer will be. God, uh, skipping forward, chooses Abraham to be the father of a great nation, a special nation, a nation set apart whose purpose was to show other nations of the, the world how to glorify the true God and obey His law. From Abraham, we eventually get the nation Israel, and God delivers Israel out of Egypt through great miracles, brings them to a land that they can call their own, and He sends Joshua and other scouts Look at the land and what do they see? Giants in the land. And they don't want to go into the land. little foreshadowing of our story today. Eventually, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, gee, more foreshadowing, we're going to hear that number 40 later in the story, they do enter the land and God helps them clear out the land. And again, they're supposed to glorify God in the land and be this salt and light to the other nations to draw fallen man's attention to Yahweh God. They're the only true God. And yet, it's not too soon before Israel goes its own way. We read in the book of Judges that everyone ends up doing what is right in their own eyes, eventually ending with Israel saying, we don't want God as our king anymore. We want a human king like all the other nations. They were supposed to be set apart and different from the other nations. But they want to be like the other nations. They think this is the solution to their problems. And so God says, I will appoint for you a human king, but first I am going to give you a king who's like you to demonstrate to you what your problem is. And he gives them Saul, a man who is concerned with his own glory. Getting that title king goes right to his head. He's a, he's a tall, great physical specimen of a man, exactly the kind of person you and I would think of as a great leader. And yet we know nothing about his heart and nothing about his motives, and we end up finding out he is self-absorbed, He's man-centered, self-centered. He isn't concerned with the glory of God. Nor is he concerned with glorifying God through obedience to God's word. We see him break God's commands and so God removes his anointing from him and finds a man after his own heart and chooses a man that nobody would have thought would be king. Even David's own father didn't bother calling David in from the field when Samuel came to anoint one of his sons as the next king. He's an afterthought. He's that kid out in the field who watches the sheep. And so this is where we pick up the story now. David's been anointed. No one knows except his family. The Holy Spirit has left Saul, and God would at times, send a disturbing or an evil or bad, hard to translate the word in the Hebrew, uh, a spirit to torment Saul, really as judgment for his apostasy. And we do read at the end of 1 Samuel 16 that people knew there was this boy, this young man who played the harp exceptionally well, and they called for David to come to the king's court and play for him to soothe him while he was in one of these fits of madness and rage. And when he would play, God would remove the evil spirit from Saul and he, he would calm down. And so God's introducing David into the royal court and in front of the entire royal court starting to really make a contrast between Saul in David. That's our focus. That's the context. The Holy Spirit's on David, and now he's able to do amazing things because God has chosen him and anointed him for this special purpose. You thought he played the harp well before, wait till the Holy Spirit came on him to be able to soothe a man who's being tormented by an evil spirit. And, and later, David, with that anointing, would write 75 of the 150 Psalms. Probably wrote more, but those are the ones that we have recorded here. We also knew he was a very skilled young man before he was anointed by God. He was a skilled shepherd. He um, he killed a bear and, and a lion, we read. Um, so he was brave and heroic even before he was anointed. So yes, we can say that God gives us all gifts. But he intends for us to use those gifts to bring glory to to God, not to ourselves. Perfect... Uh, passage Matt Sheridan read this morning, that you may have all the gifts in the world, but without love, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and be concerned with His glory, those gifts are nothing but a clanging gong and a noisy cymbal. That's what he read at first service, I wasn't in here for second, is that the passage? Okay, I'm getting like blank stares like, that's not what he read. Okay, I'm glad he was consistent. So, we have a five-point sermon this morning. The first point, we're going to see an unbeatable foe. An unbeatable foe. Hopefully you'll think of Goliath in a new way this morning. Chapter 17, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and they camped between Soko and Azekah in I stumble over this word and um, uh, the Elms' son just got back from Israel. And he said, I was there! I got to see the valley and I heard them say this name over and over. I said, how did I do? And he said, you didn't get it right. So... <laughs> Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. So you, you see the picture. You've got the Philistines on one side of the valley, the Israelites on the other side of the valley, much the way you would picture in any movie, like a Civil War scene, or maybe the Lord of the Rings movies, or the Narnia movies, You know, where the, the two armies just line up, and then they blow the horn, and there they go. And the stronger army uh, will win. So, uh, not much strategy, just overpower. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with the valley between them. Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines, Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Six cubits and a span that 's roughly nine foot nine inches tall uh, this this is a ten foot tree here and i 'm six one so yeah, yikes makes Daryl Sipes look like a puny guy right um, this morning. Um, Oh, um, I just forgot his name, but he's a really big guy himself. Um, Mr. Fuller. You know the Fullers. Mark. Thank you, Mark. Uh, he went to that Passages Museum, and there's a life-size cutout of Goliath, and he's standing in, in front. I think Mark's probably 6'2", 6'3", and probably two sixty, two seventy, Big guy, and he's got a picture of him standing in front of Goliath, and he looks like a little boy. So, this is not a tall tale. God doesn't exaggerate. He doesn't deal in hyperbole. This is Goliath's actual size. And you're like, nah, nobody could be that big. Well, just in in 1940, a man in America, at his death, uh, was measured at 8 foot 11 at age 22. His name was uh, Robert Wadlow. So, There are people this tall. And certainly there was more of them as we read in the Bible in in biblical times. And yet, we can discern from the remains of of people in ancient times that people were not that tall. The average height uh, was definitely under six feet tall. So... And David uh, is a boy here, a young man, but he's certainly not a huge physical specimen, right? Because when Samuel came to anoint David, no, or came to anoint the next king, nobody thought of David as the next king. He's very young, he's inexperienced, he probably hasn't filled out completely yet. He's definitely athletic, Though we know he has some skill, but even that kind of athleticism is no match for a man this size. On top of that, because Goliath is so big, we read that his, his armor, he had a bronze helmet on his head and he was clothed with scale armor so it looked like fish scales which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. That is about 125 pounds. Probably D- David probably weighed a little bit more than 125 pounds, but not much more. So, are you getting the picture, the contrast in your mind? The whole scene is supposed to make us believe that this foe is unbeatable. It's not that it's uh, the odds are stacked against David; it's it's unwinnable by human terms. I read in the commentaries that this description of Goliath is the um, most thorough description we have of any character in the Bible. And that makes sense to me because God says he doesn't look on the outward appearance. We learn more about people's character and their inner man. But God really wants us to just know what an imposing figure this really is. Larger than life. So, 125 pounds of armor, and then he had a shield carrier who went before him. Imagine how big a shield was and how heavy it was. I mean, how are you going to penetrate the shield? And if you get past the shield, what about the armor? Maybe um, David could, you know, kick him in the shins or something here. But even that had armor on it, we read. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle, array?" Am I not the Philistine and you, servants of Saul? At this time, the Philistines considered themselves masters over Israel. They were definitely the dominant nation, so much so that they had a monopoly on iron. Their weaponry was made of iron, they knew how to work with iron, they had access to iron. The only iron that the Israelites had was for their plowshare and they had to go to the Philistines to ask them to sharpen their tools and pay a great fee. Talk about humiliating your enemies. We have uh, stronger metal than you have access to. We use it to make our weapons and we'll only sell enough of it to you for your farming equipment. And when you need it sharpened or worked on, you have to come to us because we, we, we have the blacksmiths who know how to work on this, this metal. To add insult to injury, often the Israelites would use that equipment to farm, and then when the harvest would come in, the Philistines would swoop down and steal their food. So, It's not just that Goliath is huge. He has a huge, powerful army to back him up as well. But, when God anointed Saul as as the king of Israel, Saul did win a couple of battles. So Israel is starting to get some courage that, hey, we're contenders here. We We can win. We have the Lord on our side. But like Saul, these are people who view the world with their eyes, materialistic. And when they see this great foe, they immediately cower and forget that they have God to fight their battles. How soon we forget. How soon we forget. We have to tell our stories of God's victory in our life over and over. We call those testimonies. And you need to share your testimony. You need to tell your kids the amazing things God has done in your life against all odds. Certainly, Israel has forgotten stories. This is a nation that God saved out of Egypt through great miracles, parted the Red Sea, brought manna from heaven, water from a rock, and conquered their enemies so they could enter the land. Remember Jericho and all the great battles. Like I skipped a verse. By the way, Saul's javelin had a 15-pound iron spearhead on it. Imagine that being hurled at you by a guy almost 10 feet tall. So this is an unbeatable foe. It's not an unlikely foe. Like, maybe I could beat him. And for 40 days he would come out and mock and taunt the armies of Israel and by extension mocking and taunting Israel's God. And nobody would answer the challenge. And the challenge was this, you send out your champion fight me and the winner the losing team will have to serve us. But if you can beat Goliath, we'll serve you. And so I said, at this time, it was more like the Israelites were serving the Philistines. The Philistines had the upper hand. So Goliath says, am I not the Philistine? And you're just servants of Saul, your puny king. Where is he? Why won't he come out here? I'm certain, too, that Goliath didn't just appear out of nowhere, I'm sure he had a reputation in the land and people had heard of this giant and that the stories of his great heroic feats and what he did to his enemies, I'm sure, was famous in the land. Now, we don't know, commentators don't know that... um, These kinds of duels where you send out your champion and we'll send out ours were common in ancient literature, but I don't know that anyone actually, after the duel, followed up on the deal. That nations didn't actually lay down their arms after the the championship was lost and, and just willingly became servants of the other nation. But it often did mean that you were going to pay tribute to the other king That means you would pay a very heavy tax that would keep your nation so poor that you would never have enough money to hire mercenaries, buy better um, uh, equipment for war, or pay off other nations to pair up with you against a nation. This is how dominating nations kept opposing nations weak. So most likely this is what would have happened after the two champions um, fought. This word champions is very interesting in the Hebrew. It's ish habanaim, which literally means the man between two. The man between two. And it's the only place in the Bible where this word appears. Keep that in the back of your mind as we go on. The man who stands in between two. You're starting to see this is more than an underdog story. In all the other underdog stories we know, the underdog actually has a chance of winning. Nobody's going to beat this guy in hand-to-hand combat. Impossible. Impossible. And because of that, nobody stepped forward. They all knew it was certain death. Not a single Israelite volunteered. Not only would it be certain death, but in an honor-shame society, your name would go down in infamy as the one who lost to Goliath and is responsible for all of your countrymen becoming servants of your most hated enemy. Although Saul tried to coax a champion from the ranks, We're going to find out that he promised anyone who defeated Goliath would get to marry his daughter, thus becoming part of the royal family. And your family, your whole tribe, would be tax-free forever. So basically, your family would almost enjoy royal status as well. So that's quite a prize. And still, nobody would step forward. Saul himself stayed in his tent, indoors. He wouldn't come out. He may not even be on the scene. His uh, royal court was only 15 miles from this scene, so he may have stayed back where he was safe. We certainly don't see anyone attempting anything heroic here. Let's go to the second point, then. We do need a hero, and up comes a very unlikely hero. As unlikely a hero as we could possibly find, this shepherd boy. And you know the story. He's so small that Saul gives him his armor to wear, and he he can't wear this armor. Saul was a big man. We know that. Remember, it said he, he was a full head taller than anyone else in Israel. Often in these bouts, these you bring out your champion and I bring out my champion, the king would give his armor to their champion for two reasons. One, they thought that uh, the king had some kind of uh, you know, special power, and by wearing his armor, somehow that power, uh, you could tap into that. But from a purely selfish motive, um, when they defeated the opponent, the fact that they're wearing the king's armor, some of that glory that would go to the champion would also go to the king. So it was kind of a win-win for the king. Look, you wear my armor, if you lose, you lost, it wasn't me. But if you win, well, certainly my armor had something to do with the win, And so Saul offers to give his armor to David, we're going to find. And David says, I can't wear this. It doesn't fit, it's too heavy. He doesn't use those terms exactly, but he just says, I haven't had time to practice in this. And so he goes out completely unprotected against this 10 foot tall man in 125 pounds of armor and this huge shield and javelin. Try to picture what that would look like in your head. Maybe you have a a son looking at the Bowers. Picture Drew out there against this behemoth man. Not only is he big, but he's a champion. He has fought for years. He's a skilled fighter. says, Now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. And Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men. The three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, the second to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. You remember these names as Samuel came with the horn of oil to anoint the next king. He started with Eliab and then Abinadab and then Shammah and then the other four sons. And none of them were the king God had chosen. And again, David was an afterthought. David was the youngest. Now the three oldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. So David would spend time shepherding his father's flock, occasionally bring food to the real men in the front lines, and uh, occasionally when Saul was distressed, he would come and play his harp in Saul's court. The Philistine came forward morning and evening for forty days and took his stand. Again, this is hearkening us back to the 40 years that Israel had to spend in the wilderness, the last time they refused to trust God to defeat the giants in the land. Then Jesse said to David, his son, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these ten loaves, and run to the camp to your brothers. Bring also these ten cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand, and look into the welfare of your brothers, and bring back news of them. For Saul and they... Get this, and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah fighting the Philistines. So, David's own father didn't consider him a man enough to, to fight. And I wouldn't say it's an insult, it's just truth. He's too young. His, the other three brothers aren't old enough to go out yet either. But if the, if the other three brothers aren't old enough to go out and fight, imagine how young and how meek David is. I think some of the pictures that we see of David and Goliath, they have David looking a little too buff and a little too heroic. So David arose early in the morning and left the flock with a keeper and took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. So imagine this this boy. Remember, he's good looking. I said this morning... Picture more uh, someone who would look cute in a boy band. You know, he's he's handsome. He's he plays music really well. He keeps the sheep. Maybe someday he's going to fill out and get his man jaw, but he's not there yet. And he shows up, and he's excited to be with the other men and see what's going on at the front lines. And I'm sure for the older brothers, it's kind of annoying to have your younger brother around, you know, bring me the food and get out of here, kid, before you get hurt. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines, and he spoke these same words, and David heard them. Now, David has never seen a man like this before. No one's ever seen a man like this before. But everyone else has heard this guy come out morning and evening taunting the armies of Israel and their God. When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. It makes me think of Monty Python. Run away! Right? It's... If it wasn't so insulting to God, it would be comical. But this is a scene God is painting for us. David seeing all these men and he's going to see them go into battle and, and cheer for his side. And one day I'm going to be a mighty warrior like these men. And out comes this giant and they all turn tail and run. And he is flabbergasted. When all the men of Israel saw the man they fled from him and were greatly afraid the men of Israel said have you seen this man who is coming up surely he is coming up to defy Israel and it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will make him his daughter will give him his daughter sorry and make his father's house free in Israel so they're talking amongst themselves of this great reward but nobody will man up Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, So what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Get that. He's he's concerned about this reproach against Israel. And he's asking about the reward, and this is point number three. I believe we see unselfish motive in David. He's not so concerned about the reward. We're going to see that he's more concerned... That this uncircumcised pagan Philistine is mocking our God. And nobody's doing anything about it. And the reward for doing it is making God's name great. That's the reward. But I think we can make a biblical case, Old Testament and new, that the man or the woman who is concerned with the glory of God, in that there is also great reward. Blessing here on earth, but amazing riches waiting for us in heaven. In fact, we'll just say it now, I believe this is the point of the whole story. Be concerned with God's glory be concerned with God's glory. This is the contrast between David and Saul. Saul, a man concerned with his own glory. David, a man concerned with God's glory. Both of them had the Holy Spirit for a time. Saul had it. And he was able to do great things, but he took that glory on himself. David was given the Holy Spirit by God to be a contrast with Saul and to make the point to all of Israel and to us today that your gifts and talents aren't enough to accomplish the things God wants accomplished for His glory. But if you will be concerned with the glory of God and humble yourself before Him, He can accomplish great and mighty things through you. And so, Eliab, the oldest brother heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? You hear the jealousy in the older brother's voice? I mean, he was there when he got passed over, and David was called in from the field. He saw Samuel anoint David. He's the firstborn. He's supposed to be the guy who gets all the blessing and gets all the attention. Listen to what he says to David, you know. It's kind of like, shut up. What are you doing down here? Aren't you supposed to be back with those few sheep? He wouldn't even give him credit for being a shepherd. Your handful of sheep, your pretend job, your little chore God, uh, Dad's given you. How dare you come down here in front of these real men and rebuke us for not fighting against Goliath. But David said, "What have I done now? <laughs> Isn't that what the younger brother would totally say? What? What'd I say? Was it? Uh, was it not just a question? Honest question. How come nobody's fighting this this Philistine? Why'd you all run away?" Then he turned away from him to another and said the same thing, and the people answered the same thing as before. And when the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul, and he sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. So no one's volunteered but David but Saul's not excited about David as the volunteer. In fact, he tells him, "You're you're just a youth." While he has been a warrior from his youth. A beautiful play on words there in the Hebrew. You know, you're just a kid. This guy's been beating people up since he was a kid. Not only are you smaller than him, but you're completely inexperienced. It's 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 an impossible task. I'm sending you to certain death. But David said to Saul, "'Your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him.' Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. Wow, this kid is bold, but he's got the Holy Spirit on him. That that boldness is from God. Notice he keeps using the word uncircumcised. Remember, that is the sign of the covenant with God. This man has no covenant with the God of the universe. What makes you think God will allow him to win?
1: He's going to go down
0: just like a bear or a lion. I've I've taken on bullies before. This is just one more. And David said the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear. He will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with armor. David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. He took his stick in his hand, which is what he would use to shepherd the flock, and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his pouch. And his sling was in his hand, and he, he approached the Philistine. Now we're going to see an uncommon act of faith, an uncommon act of faith. And I say uncommon because in my life I have observed this, that people will do great things if they think that they're going to win. But if it doesn't look like they have a chance, then... They usually will not engage, whether it's fighting against their own sin, evangelizing the lost, you know, really stepping outside your comfort zone. It takes faith to do something that you don't think you can do on your own. Nobody on that mountain thought David could win this thing. I mean, if I have people behind me encouraging me and we'll be right there behind you every step of the way and you could do this, nobody thought he could do this. Nobody was telling him, you're going to win. In fact, I think they were probably embarrassed when he ran out there with no armor and nothing but a stick and a sling. They were probably all like, we're all... he's going to lose... We're all going to be servants. Who knows what the Philistines are going to require of us. Remember the other army who had told Saul, Look, well, we won't fight you. If you surrender, all your men have to poke out your right eye. Remember that? And so this was kind of the terms of surrender. Who knew what they were going to have to do? And yet David runs out. In fact, it says he, he ran out to meet Goliath. And he says, You come to me with, with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly, now he's speaking to both armies, all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Don't judge a book by its cover. Don't look on the outside. What seems impossible to you and I is nothing for God to accomplish. Let's be honest. Each of us have wanted to be the hero growing up. We all want to be special. We all want the notoriety. We all want to do something amazing. Whether you're a musician and you dream of winning American Idol, or you're an athlete and you want to score the winning touchdown, or you take pride in your intelligence and and you want to make some great discovery, you want the A, the highest grade on the test in the class, whatever it is that you think makes you special because God has given you some gift or talent. In our sinfulness, we want to take that very thing God has given us to bring glory to Him and use it to bring glory to ourselves. And we, we think pretty high of ourselves until God puts us in a situation where we know we are no match. My dad was just commenting while I was home for Thanksgiving. He remembers me calling home my freshman year at UCLA, and he said, how's it go, son? And I'm like, he said, you sounded a little depressed, and you said, everybody here is smart. (laughs) It ain't high school in Stockton anymore. Everybody in my classes wanted to be a doctor. And you'd ask people for help in your chemistry lab, and they wouldn't help Because you were competition. And I used to put great pride in my intelligence, and I was just an average guy surrounded by a whole lot of people much smarter than, than I was. But here's David. Because God's glory is on the line, you see this uncommon act of faith. This is for God, not for me. And because it's for God, he was assured he knew God would win the day. And David is clear that God will get all the credit for this victory because there's no way possible David should have won. No sword, no spear, no no chainmail. Just a boy with a sling and a rock. You know, this reminds me too, one commentator was saying, remember when Dagon, the idol, when the Philistines stole the ark, brought the ark, and Dagon fell on his face and his head came off, foreshadowing this act. All the false gods, all the giants of this world are no match for God. We'll end here with two unbelievable responses. So David wins, cuts off Goliath's head, brings the head back with him to show Saul that he's won. And we see two complete opposite responses. First, Jonathan's response. Jonathan is Saul's son. He should be the heir to the throne. Nobody at this time really understands that The throne has been stripped away from Saul, even though God has told Saul, God has told Samuel the prophet, Saul is still sitting on his throne. If Jonathan was a normal person, he would say, that throne is mine next. Instead, he sees this great champion with this great zeal for God, so different than his own dad. And this is what the scriptures say in in chapter 18, verse 1. Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as himself. And Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. So Saul brought him into full-time service in the royal court. And then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan stripped himself of his royal robe and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. This is picturing the way we should respond to our hero, Jesus Christ, to humbly give him our robe, our most prized possessions, everything that signifies, I'm my own king. I'm the heir apparent. It's an unbelievable response to think that the prince of Israel would look at this shepherd boy and say, Now, there's a man I could follow. There's a man I could love. There's a man I could make covenant with. By the way, a side note, so sad that the the gay community points to this text and says this is proof that David and Jonathan had some kind of inappropriate relationship yes they point to this text we see we see nothing of the sort here this word love in the hebrew is the same word god uses for his covenant love for his people david ends up marrying Saul, falls in love with saul's daughter michael marries her and when david falls into sin he falls into sin with with a woman there's no hint at all of of this kind of thing in this passage. I just wanted to make you aware of that because they do run to this passage as an example of some kind of beautiful male-male relationship. It is a beautiful male-male relationship, one of friendship and camaraderie. But then we see Saul's response. Unbelievable. David comes back from another battle and the people come out to sing And they sing, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul becomes very angry. The saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul, he's already been given the kingdom, remember? God has stripped the kingdom from you. And it says, Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. This kid's going to steal my glory and steal my throne. This is a man who doesn't recognize God's anointing. And that this man David, this young man, wants to glorify God with his life and even lay down his life for his nation and for his God. Jonathan gets it. Saul doesn't. So what lessons are to be learned here? Number one, we are not David. We are more like Saul or David's brothers or the rest of the Israelite army, completely overmatched and overwhelmed by our true enemy, sin and death. We are no match for our sin nature, for the penalty of sin, for the power of sin. Our champion is Jesus Christ. He is the true and better David. In fact, David is a type of Christ, very clearly. In fact, Jesus sits on David's throne, the Bible says. You want to know who the hero is? Stop wanting to be the hero. Jesus is our hero. He, he's the meek shepherd who lays down his life for his people and defeats the true giants in our life, sin and death. And we have two responses we can make. We could respond like Jonathan with love and admiration and covenant and take off our royal robes we think we deserve and put them on our rightful champion and follow him as our king. Or we could be like Saul, and like the crowds in Jesus' day who became jealous of him, of his goodness, of his perfection, of his meekness, of his gospel. There's only two responses to this man, Jesus. Are you Jonathan, or are you Saul? Saul? David's courage and heroics came from the Holy Spirit. God chose David to be the hero of Israel because of David's zeal for God's glory. If you want to be like David, be like David in this. Use your gifts and talents to bring glory to God, and you can't go wrong. Again, David is a type of Christ, he's the true hero who, though meek in appearance, defeats the true giants in our lives, sin and death. So when we place our faith in Christ, we have communion with Christ. It's not just that we get saved. We have communion with Christ when we place our faith in Him. He is in us. We are in Him. We get His victory and His power. The victory Christ won on the cross over sin and death becomes our victory. No, you cannot kill the giants in your life on your own. That's the point of the passage. Goliath is too big, too powerful. That sin that has overtaken you, in and through Christ, you can have victory over that sin. Christ has already lived the perfect life you couldn't. The penalty of death... Can you raise yourself from the dead? No. Only Christ can do that, and he has. So there's now no fear about death. No fear of God's condemnation. For in Christ Jesus, you are perfectly justified. God calls you his own, his child. He will not reject you because in Christ you are accepted. No fear of persecution. I know this horrible thing that happened in San Bernardino. It's scary. But we have the victory in Christ already. Don't let them win by us staying indoors and keeping quiet. Live boldly for Christ, like David. I want to close uh, with this a couple months before... Our friend and brother, Aaron Barnett, went home to be with the Lord. I got to pray with him in my office, and I asked him if he was scared. At this point, he knew that he was not going to defeat cancer. And he knew that the cancer was not the Goliath. Death was the Goliath. And he said, I'm not scared. I'm like, well, maybe that's the Marine in him, you know, but it wasn't false bravado because he said, Jesus has already won the victory. I'm not scared. My Savior is risen. I win. It was. I know that's true, and as the pastor, I was supposed to be telling him that. But how often when we go to minister to others do they end up ministering to us? So let's remember this Christmas season that in and through Christ, our champion who went in between, stood in between, stood in the gap for us, we have the victory. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for that victory in Christ Jesus our Lord. Meek and mild baby in a manger. No one would think of a baby as powerful enough to defeat sin and death, and yet He did just that for us. Thank You for that gift. May it inspire us and embolden us to live for Christ, to love like Christ, and to teach the Gospel to all that we come in contact with. In Christ's name we pray, amen.